The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Hey, Bob, here's a little letter. I've been waiting for this from the Bureau of Internal Revenue, the tax department. Oh, yeah, I noticed that when I was bringing the mail up today. Well, why didn't you tell me it was here? I've been waiting for this. Do you know what this is? My tax refund. Hey, 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 how much you getting back, Ralph? Well, the way I figured it out, about $42. There's a letter here, but no check. Well, what did the letter say, Ralph? Dear Mr. Cramden, Please report to Mr. Richard Putter of our office at 10 o'clock in the morning of the 21st. Huh. Wonder what he wants to see you about. I don't know. I never got one of these. Well, there's nothing to get upset about, Ralph. Tomorrow's the 21st. You'll find out then. Guess you're right. There's nothing to worry about. No, honey. Come on. Eat your supper. Couldn't be anything important. Mm, sure it isn't. What could they want? Listen, Ralph, probably the only thing you did was deduct something that you shouldn't have. So now you have to pay tax on that deduction. They're just going to take the money out of your refund. Oh, is that all they're going to do? They're just going to take it out of my refund. It so happens, Alice, that I was planning on that refund in its entirety. I need all of the refund, all forty-two dollars. What? Don't you realize how serious this is? They're investigating me. Ralph, being investigated is not the end of the world. You are not the first person who was ever investigated. You're darn right. The jails are full of. Them. All right. <laughs> Good morning, London. It is Thursday, July 22nd, 2010. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bed. And welcome to the show today, where our subject matter will be. Of course, as you told from the, could, could tell from the opening clip, uh, about taxes in general. And we're going to be looking at a very taxing question. How would a legitimate government fund itself? And the other question is, government stripping away the non-essentials. What is government in the first place? You can't answer a question about what taxes should be if you don't know what government should be about. Right, Robert? That's right. As a matter of fact, we've been talking a lot about that the entire hour. Exactly. And first off, uh, oh, and the other thing I want to look at earlier in the show is not just the taxes, but the spending, where some of our money is going. And one of the things we're going to be looking at is the Pan Am Games that have just been awarded to Toronto. Pan Am scam I am, I tell you, <laughs> right out of Dr. Seuss. And then first off, getting it right. Uh, the, I've seen so many issues in the news lately, I thought it was time to start addressing some of them. And what I see basically in the papers all the time, is people are debating the non-essentials um, about all the issues that I see. I found a number of issues in the news these past few weeks that were issues I've been personally involved in, either through my involvement with, you know, Freedom Party or the taxpayer groups that I've been with, London Middlesex Taxpayers Coalition, HALT, you've been involved in all of those. Montgomery Tavern? Um, thought of the Montgomery Tavern Association because that's going to come up a, a <laughs> reference to that in a clip later on today. 
been with other lobby groups, or in the media where I've had the opportunity to see people and witness events reported in the news for myself. Now, I just couldn't decide which specific issues to choose to illustrate my theme today, you know, foolishly having entertained the possibility of talking about a dozen issues from hydro rates, Sunday shopping laws, Ann Coulter, the Canadian census, pot laws, municipal elections, the Pan Am games. Anyways, today I settled on primarily two of them, and that was uh, the Canadian census and the Pan Am games. But my focus will be less on the politics and technicalities of these issues as on their impact on the public and how these issues are debated in terms of non-essentials and irrelevancies to the fundamental issue that needs to be resolved. I've read so many uh, stupidities in the paper lately, Robert, when it comes to politics and taxation and the like, there's a half a dozen or so destructive and self-defeating assumptions and arguments that people repeatedly make when getting into political discussions and philosophic debates. Now, I think they're either honest errors in thinking or they're driven by a psychological dishonesty caused as, at its root by a desire to live effort-free. And that's, uh, unfortunately, what we see a lot of. And when I say effort-free, I mean effort-free of thinking, of thinking things through and reasoning them out. I'm not talking about work and physical labor, which requires far less effort, quite frankly, in my experience. I agree with you. I realize this is a major assertion to make, especially in light of the fact that I do not intend on today's show to particularly trace how I arrived at these conclusions. But, uh, you know, here are the basic six principles, not really principles, but points that people, mistakes people keep making. One is the public's complete evasion of the law of identity with regard to government. Namely, government is a gun. It's an agency of force. It is different from anything else. It's, it's a gun. When I think of, you know, G is for government, G is for gun. Easy to remember. The second one is the public willingness to use force to solve every problem. Again, government is a gun. We'll use that government to do something that we wouldn't be allowed to do in our normal lives. The third one is the public failure to understand that there is a penalty to every law. And it is the penalty, not the law per se, that does the harm. It's the people who get caught in the penalty that are being hurt. And the fourth one is the public is buried in non-essential arguments. Um, you know, like I saw one, I could have done this subject, Sunday shopping. Does it make money or doesn't it make money? Never mind people are going to jail if you have a Sunday shopping law, if they want to open their store. Never mind no, but, your basic right, right to open your own property whenever you feel like it. So, uh, you know, these are just some of the things. And then there's the, the abandonment of, of morality. Every, morality is replaced by majority and minority thinking. Um, never mind right and wrong, we'll go with the majority over minority, and that's what we see everywhere. And that's a natural political um, force in place, but majority-minority does not determine right and wrong. These things are independent of majorities. And, of course, the ever-inherent appeal to need, 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 need. It's, it's inherent in all arguments and very explicit in others. So where do I begin? simple one. People think there's a difference, for example, between liberals, conservatives, and new Democrats, right, Robert? They do. You hear it all the time. And there is. Liberals stand for socialism for the elite. New Democrats stand for socialism for the poor. <laughs> and conservatives stand for socialism for the middle class. So they are different. Yep. <laughs> it's the same difference, though. A difference of sameness. Socialism, socialism, or more socialism. I remember that being in the very first essay I ever wrote. I had to write those words when I got involved in politics back way in the 19, early 1980s. Each group wants to make the other two groups, quote, pay for socialism. 
Just like the Marxist Leninists who cry, make the rich pay, you know, as if anybody else could. <laughs> yeah, make the poor pay, that's going to work. The problem with this debate is that the law of identity is evaded. Or more, more to the point, socialism is socialism is socialism, no matter what package you wrap it in meaning that it will have the same eventual effects on society regardless of whether it's socialism 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, or 4.17. You know, you can bring in any version you want. The second is the non-essential argument. Shall we rob Peter to pay Paul? No, says the other side, we should rob Paul to pay Peter. <laughs> you know, it's like those, remember those two half, half white, half black characters on that old episode of Star Trek oh, yes, who hated Frank each Gorshin. other? Yes, and, and nobody could figure out what they were arguing about until one said, well, he's black on the white, right side and I'm black on the left side or whatever. I don't know which, mm -hmm. which it was. But of course, the real debate was, you know, both sides were moronic, just like the superficiality of today's political debates. And the big one that caught my eye was the Canadian census. Boy, I, I've got all these articles. You know, I agree with a lot of these articles, but all of them, not, not a one has hit the essential point. I agree with what Ezra Levant said here, long-form census, not worth it, right? I agree with this editorial in the free press, short-form over, it just makes census, or, or, or so, sorry, short-form over long, okay? It just makes census. They're, they're all making plays on words, just like I do. But none of them, none, nothing I saw hit the points. The Harper government, of course, have take, taken a rare half-step in the right direction by making voluntary the long form of the Canadian census. Now, I had a personal campaign I went public with during the last census. I didn't fill it out. And uh, I was one of the many people who didn't because, quite frankly, the questions on it were offensive. But that wasn't the reason I didn't fill it out. I also didn't fill out the previous one when I got the short term, or short form. And so... It's been a long-term thing with me. In fact, when I got involved in politics, this was an issue I inherited from the previous party that preceded Freedom Party. They were already working on fighting the census because they understood that the census, such as it is today, is being used for central government planning. That's its major function. And it really doesn't have any other functions. Now, in a letter to the editor of the London Free Press dated July 17, 2010, writer Joanne Lovell Christofferson wrote... A letter that just to me had every... It was so wrong, it wasn't even wrong. <laughs> and she writes, quote, A few weeks ago, our government eliminated the mandatory long census questionnaire, which gathers information on income, ethnicity, religion, education, work, housing, and disability, replacing it with an optional survey. Some might feel that this is a step in the right direction by removing one more bureaucratic activity from our very busy lives. However, I have some grave concerns, she says. Well, first of all, I don't think bureaucratic activity has anything to do with why I wouldn't do it. I just don't like a gun pointed at my head. You once, you once told me that you would be happy to answer all those questions if they just simply asked. Yeah, that's all I have to do is pick up, you know, but don't threaten me with a gun. Don't, don't say, okay, if you don't answer these questions, this is what's going to happen to you. I object to that. And I think it's a citizen's almost responsibility to. If you understand what your rights and privileges are in this country, they're not about filling out forms for governments to plan your life. It's the very opposite of what the government should be doing. So she writes that, how do we plan for the future if we cannot rely on the information we've gathered from the past? She's talking about statistics, not information. One learns from philosophy and history, not from the non-essential facts of a census. You learn, don't learn anything from that. And she asks, how do we address the systemic barriers if we do not know the measured elements previously gathered through census completion? Well, to that I say, if one requires a census to sense systemic barriers, then you can bet that census itself is the cause of the systemic <laughs> barriers. 
which to a socialist-minded person like this means economic egalitarianism, or robbing Peter to pay Paul, robbing one group of Canadians to give an unearned benefit to others, which is not what being a Canadian is about as far as I'm concerned. And if you don't even know that there are differences in, in classes of Canadian people, why do you want to bring it up? You know, if nobody's complaining, you give them some information, then they start complaining. All of this information, by, by the way, gathered through the census, is available through voluntary means and a host of alternate means that you don't have to threaten people with fines and jail sentences. How do we address the infrastructure planning if we do not gather reliable information in order to understand where the weaknesses lie, she says. And, you know, I'm thinking, is she kidding? Do we actually need a census for infrastructure planning? <laughs> You know, <laughs> how did the first pioneers in this country ever create any infrastructure without threatening their fellow citizens with fines and imprisonments if they didn't re reveal personal information about themselves? I just, <laughs> I don't get it. And then she says, how do we build a stronger, more competitive country when we have failed to gather the elements of information necessary for strategic planning? Wow. Well, in the first place, government shouldn't be doing any strategic planning when it comes to economic matters and the economic choices of its citizens. If the government is doing all of our planning for us, what's there left for us to plan? Got a life? <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. They have to plan for government spending that will rob them of their ability to plan. That's the, that's the fate of Canadians. And she writes, how do we develop strong immigration and economic policies if we do not know or understand the population that resides in Canada? Wow. My answer to that is with an economic policy of capitalism and free markets based on the principle, uh, you know, the question proper, the proper question is an open and shut case unless one plans to interfere with the free choices of consumers and force them to pay for things they wouldn't choose on their own. That's the only reason you'd be asking questions like that. Immigration could then be placed on an open immigration policy. One cannot have open immigration in a collectivist welfare society, which is what the census is designed to serve. It is a prescription for national disintegration. And no census taking will be able to prevent it. In fact, it'll encourage it. It's like putting paper on the fire. Finally, writes Ms. Lovell Christofferson, she says, I would rather experience the mild annoyance that comes with the requirement to complete a mandatory census survey than to wallow in ignorance and make uninformed decisions due to our failure as a country to plan for our future with reliable and credible information, end quote. So bottom line, every one of her non-sequitur arguments was not about information. Her letter was an unmitigated call for violence. Mandatory is preferable to voluntary. That's all she said in that whole letter. She does not believe in living in a consensual society. Moreover, it doesn't seem to occur to her that the information supplied under duress or threat of coercion is never reliable. You know, I, I heard what you said about your census. Just <laughs> <laughs> briefly, Bob, yeah. I did fill out the long-form census, was it five years ago? And uh, I think the population of Urdu-speaking people in London jumped by 27. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know they got so many of those. And I says, you know, isn't that the real argument against torture? That they know that the information isn't going to be reliable anyway when you get it from people by coercion? Your name isn't on the census. You don't sign it. it doesn't, nowhere does it say that it has to be accurate. Just you just make it up as you go along, send well, it in, and get them off. They your can back. trace it to your household, though. Good, so they can sue my household. Now you know. <laughs> now to now to analyze this argument she made in the terms that I had set before. Uh, here's the, here are the problems. Number one, she's not evading the law of identity in her case. She she recognizes government as a gun, by, but and she's actually counting on it being a fact. Okay, so in that case, she's not guilty of that, but she's picked the wrong side. Number two, 
the public willingness to use force to solve every problem. Government is a gun. She scores 11 out of 10 on this one, Robert. Her letter opens with her objection to replacing mandatory with optional and closes with her stated preference for a mandatory survey. You know, we'll know we have reached the stage of civilization and society when opinions such as this are viewed with horror. You know, just politically incorrect, you know. That's, what, that's, that's the day I look forward to. And then there's a public failure to understand that there's a penalty to every law, and it's the penalty again that does the harm. In this writer's case, she incorrectly perceives the legal consequence as a mild annoyance, which is, you know, what only those, that's, it, it is that, but only the, to, to those people who obey the law. What about the, to the people who choose not to cooperate? Is it a mild annoy, annoyance for them? Can you imagine somebody sitting in a jail cell and one fellow who's in there for armed robbery says to the other, what are you in here for? Yeah. I didn't fill out my census. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> how. It's ludicrous. Well, it's like Mark Emery sitting in jail for, for selling seeds. Yes. Um, so they get fined or jail for completely non-criminal behavior, for not doing something that doesn't need doing. So the public is buried in non-essential arguments. Her whole letter is a non-essential. The essential argument in planning for government is the argument between living in a free society or an unfree society. And then there's the abandonment of, of morality. I like that old saying, morality ends where a gun begins. Remember that one? Mm. As for the Harper government... One thumb up for making the long census form voluntary. One thumb down for keeping the short form mandatory. Here again, the Harper government is operating on non-essentials and the abandonment of morality. They think the long form census should be voluntary not because it violates individual rights and imposes unnecessary force on law-abiding citizens, but because of the nature of the questions which some people found objectionable, with an abandonment of morality in favor of majority rule. Even when they did the right thing, they did it for the wrong reasons. Worse, many conservative and libertarian types, you know, they start shouting, look, see, see, the conservatives are moving in the direction of more freedom through less government, when in fact the conservatives are doing no such thing. They're moving exactly the opposite way. Even those who protested the long-form census did not do so because it was mandatory. You know, they did it because they found the questions on the form offensive, particularly those relating to race and religion, etc., which I agree with. Don't mm -hmm. get me wrong. But that's not the essential argument. Yet it's the fact that it is mandatory in the first place that inevitably leads to situations like this. Who would, be you know, who would object to being asked these same offensive questions if the questions were voluntary? Nobody. I don't want to answer that. Okay, goodbye. You know, that's the essential issue. The fact that the government is pointing its gun at your head for failing or refusing to answer is what is offensive about this. It matters not whether they want to know about your sex life or how many bathrooms or TV sets you have in your house. Who cares? <laughs> I'm amazed they care. All of the information obtained through the government's involuntary census can be morally and more reliably obtained through dozens of already existing means. The surprising accuracy of polls that, that have a very small sample, you know, 19 times out of 20, they're so accurate. And municipalities collect stats, and other forms of government collect stats through their tax bases, through so, citizenship, you know, this is a million ways. Violence is unnecessary, and it's wrong. The census should be voluntary. Totally, period, end of story. That's all I'm going to say on that. Now, another non-essential. In an episode of Star Trek Next Generation, we're going to hear a clip right now. Uh, we learn of a culture of semi-naked young people <laughs> running around that has a peculiar law. The penalty for any offense, whether stepping on the grass or murder, is death. Throughout the whole episode, not once does anyone mention the irrationality or evil of a law that would equate stepping on the grass with murder. 
never comes up once. <laughs> they all argue about uh, oh, mutual respect for other laws and customs and cultures in the face of an injustice that is basically unconscionable, but nobody brings it up. So I guess that's what the semi-naked ladies were there for. They were the consolation prize for this show. Yeah. <laughs> and when we return on the other side of the break, another example of where, how, and why your tax dollars are being spent. We'll be talking about the Pan Am Games because they're coming to Toronto. We'll be back after this. Speak the truth. We are mediators. I said I was fine. He doesn't know. He's from another place. How very sad. But this zone has been selected. But he doesn't understand. It's always sad. Now doubly so. I was chasing the ball, and I fell into that. I'm really sorry. You admit you did that, freely. It won't happen again. We apologize. We're sorry, too. But that changes nothing. Careful, Commander. They've got some strange laws here. I thought you reviewed their laws. But they listed nothing about punishment. Uh, here's the next item. Income from interest on loans, bonds, or bank accounts. You have to pay a tax on interest of bank accounts? Oh, sure, of course. You got to pay a tax on everything. It's income. Get your bank book. $75. Income on interest, bank account, $75. That's not the interest, that's the bank account. <laughs> interest comes to about $2.25. Now, income from tips, gratuities, or bonuses. We didn't get any bonus this year. The boss gave us all a skinny chicken. <laughs> well, you uh, got any idea what the skinny chicken was worth? About $2, I guess. One skinny chicken. <laughs> $2. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where 519-661-3600 is always a number you can call to join in on the conversation. And Robert, in November, Toronto won. <laughs> they won the Pan Am Games bid, the thing that we fought here in the city back in 19... in the 80s. It was 1991 Pan Am Games that we were fighting successfully. Successfully, yes. And, of course, the city was all jubilant about Toronto having been awarded the 2015 Pan Am Games. And, of course, Freedom Party is still behind the No Tax for Pan Am cam campaign. We're not against the games. We're in favor of the games. Have them all you want, but don't be charging taxpayers. And there is a site you can go to, notaxforpanam.com, to see a lot of the stuff I'll be talking about. And uh, Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever, of course, headed up this, and he also became the, the, the spokesman for the No Tax for Pan Am committee. And he appeared on a couple of shows in Toronto on radio, uh, 640 AM Radio Toronto and a John Oakley show, and the Ryan, Ryan Doyle show on 1010 CFRB just this past March. And he was pitted against Toronto Sunwriter Rob Granitstein and other members of the public who really didn't agree with his position on Pan Am because I think they all had a bit of an interest in it. But really, this one was, you know, this fits the theme we were talking about before. Just sounding like a caricature from Atlas Shrugged, I tell you. 
Granitstein played the needs card for all it was worth. And here's a good, we're talking about a sporting event, right? Needs, you know. <laughs> and he says, justifying tax, to justify Pan Am games, he listed the needs as there were two of them. One, a deadline to get things done. And two, infrastructure. So even a deadline is considered a need in Toronto. Apparently the city's run so poorly. They can't establish deadlines for anything. <laughs> and, of course, infrastructure is falling apart. And isn't it a shame that the only, only time politicians will address infrastructure is when there's a, an event like this to host and, and, you know, impress the neighbors kind of thing. And the rest of the time... And so everybody has to spend ten times the amount they normally would for the infrastructure to have all these wonderful facilities. And so he says, um, you know, he says, where is it here? Oh, our sports infrastructure, this is Rob Granitstein talking, is terrible. And we have so many needs in this city. How do you get it done? You bring in events like the Pan Am Games. That's a reason for other levels of government to start funding the city. And off we go. So we get to fund Toronto now. Our needs are so great on the sports side that we need a deadline in this city. <laughs> can it be a great party? I think it can be. And McKeever says, yeah, he says, it's great to have a party, but you should be going to your own refrigerator for the beer, you know. <laughs> Not going to your neighbors, grabbing the beer and saying, so long, we're having a great party. And, but here was the real clincher. Here's the shocker. Uh, McKeever, this is what got McKeever on the show. He, he did this proportional misrepresentation thing. And it was an answer to the question, what potential impact could the games have on we taxpayers? And here's what he told them. And, and, and he, he says, you know, think about this. Although not as big an event as the Olympics, the initial budget estimate on the Pan Am game was twice as large wow. as the $874 million estimate for the Olympics. And in the Olympics, after estimating $874 million, what'd they end up with? $6 billion spent. They estimated costs for security at $1.4 million. What did they spend? Nine hundred million. Wow! Not two point eight billion. Not four billion or, or million. No billions. We're talking of no nine hundred million with the security. Billions. We're talking with the games. But I mean, nine hundred times out. <laughs> How can that be? That's that's, an, that's insane. But forget that one. Sticking with the original one, he said. So he, he says, you know, using the same ratio of cost misrepresentation demonstrated in the previous examples, the real cost of hosting the games would probably be around the range of twelve billion dollars if it's going to be the same misrepresentation. And worse, whatever it is, all the money's borrowed. The government is currently running a double-digit deficit already, borrowing about $23 billion a year. There's no surplus to spend. And yet Ontario has promised to cover the deficit on the games. And that's why they can just say, we're going to spend $1.4 billion and do cost overruns. There's no, no accountability at all. You can, you can hear these whole interviews and all the details you want, again, at www.notaxforpanam.com. Referring to former Ontario Premier David Peterson, uh, who's also the current chairman of the Pan Am Bid Committee, the National Post's Allison Haynes reported that Mr. Peterson has logged countless air miles in the past year, shuffling between the countries of the Pan American Sports Organization to press flesh and establish the relationships necessary to secure the games. Well... I guess 25 years after Freedom Party and FP Action Director Mark Emery foiled his first attempt to bring the Pan Am Games to Ontario, David Peterson's finally achieved what he's called his sustainable legacy. Imagine that, sustainable legacy. His legacy will be sustained debt. by the deficits, by the debts, and the lower standard of living that inevitably accompanies such events. Robert, I tell you, this kind of reckless government spending 
continually occurs in the face of widespread public opposition. It's just remarkable how they don't care. For Peterson, I think it's a demonstration of you know, that liberal elitism at its best. Despite what one may hear in special interest forums and talk shows about public support for spending money on such sporting ventures, the reality is that opposition to such spending has always been in the 80% plus range. I've never seen a survey lower, if the right question is asked. The other reality is that politicians and games promoters ignore public opinion while continuing to declare that the majority supports them. Has it ever been an election issue? No. No. No, well, how do they get away with it? Because of the things we talked about in the opener. Because people have all these non-essential arguments. You know what they're all arguing about now? They're going to be arguing about the cost of the games, not whether the taxpayers should be paying for them or not. Oh, save some money here. You shouldn't even be in that discussion. That discussion should never happen. And by the way, if you want to see another place to see this whole principle well illustrated, it's in part one of the principle of pot, which which is online on YouTube, on um, YouTube slash Paul McKeever where, of course, there's a four-hour documentary on this which details this issue, uh, Sunday shopping, uh, the Pan Am games, a uh, number of other tax issues, which I think in a, in a show called The Principle of Pot may sound funny, but um, it's not about pot part one. Anyways, with five years to go to the billion-dollar-plus party and with political wrangles yet to be worked out on who gets a cut of the taxpayer spoils, I think the real legacy of the 2015 Pan Am games is already kind of clear, don't you think? What can we do about it? I don't know. What do you think, Robert? Tax revolt time? I don't know. That's what we were trying in London here this past, um, when was that, in October, probably on the coldest day of the year, when um, the, the Forest City Institute had that tax rally at Reg Cooper Square. Stop overspending, yes. Yeah, and was there. SOS, yes, stop overspending. And what you are about to hear is uh, Kathy Shadle, who has been a guest on this show, Five Feet of Fury and uh, co-author of The Tyranny of Nice, and she came to London to speak to the crowd there, and what she was talking about was the objection of um, the event being compared to a tea party. So she says, well, let's call it a beer party in reference to the Montgomery, Montgomery Tavern, which we can talk about maybe later. And on the other side, we'll be hearing a clip from a 2002 broadcast of Michael Corrin live with uh, Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever, who was not leader at that time. But they were talking about taxation, and uh, we'll hear that on the other side of this clip. And then, Robert, we'll get into the whole issue of taxation and government. Okay. Okay. So here's some more history for you. After I started blogging about this, this rally, I got the inevitable tweets I knew I was going to get. Dad, Paul, a tea party, tea party, America, tea party, America, boo. Because, you know, we wouldn't want to imitate the country that uh, sent a man to the moon or anything like that. Yes, I know, we made the arm. Can we talk with the arm? I'm sick of the arm. I'm sick of the Avro arrow. Please come up with a new thing. Of course, it'd be easier to invent a new thing if, you know, you could start a business in this country without... And this actually happened. Um, being afraid that you would have your restaurant shut down because you violated someone's human right to smoke pot in your doorway. Um, someone spent, what, $50,000 fighting this so far? Um, because remember, we don't have private property rights in the Charter because Ed Broadbent said that he wouldn't sign it unless Trudeau took them out. So. That's your, he's such a harmless looking little fellow, isn't he, at Broadbent? You look at him and you think, he's like a little chipper. <laughs> what, a, what a mistake. 
So somebody finally sent me another message, and they said, okay, if anybody bitches and moans about calling this a Tea Party, call it the 1837 Party, as in the Rebellion of 1837. And this is what they said in the email. From a marketing point of view, it works. 1837 was a tax revolt, as well as a revolt against the family compact. There was an armed conflict, a couple of hangings, and then they all went and drank beer in the tavern. I thought, well, now it's, they've made it impossible for us to have an armed rebellion, are you surprised? Um, and we could all think of some people who we'd probably like to hang. That's not going to happen either. Um, but in the spirit of 1837, the closest we're going to get today is the beer drinking part, I think. So I would suggest that you and all your new friends, and again, I would encourage you, if you don't know each other, these are people you can actually talk to without whispering. You might want to be friends with them. Um, go out for that beer, and maybe, just maybe, because we're overdue for one by about 150 years, maybe plan that next tax revolt. How about that? Okay, thanks very much, and thank you all for coming up on a crappy, crappy day. We're talking about taxation. We're talking about paying tax, and only a fool would say, I, I want to pay more taxation. It's like those people who say, I just want, I want more of the CBC. You know, you think, what? What? People don't want to pay more tax. They want to pay less tax if possible. But I think a lot of people do realize that, you know, you pay a certain degree because you think others deserve some help and that uh, many of us have unfair advantages. I have, I have little regard for a guy who's given a million dollars and makes another million. That's easy. I've got regard for a guy who has nothing and makes money. But um, I'd say a lot of people who are very wealthy began fairly wealthy, and that's not so difficult. We heard about uh, tax exile, about paying tax in other countries. Paul McKeever is a lawyer, also with the Ontario Freedom Party, a libertarian. That's fair enough, isn't it, to say fair a libertarian? Sure. Do you believe in any taxation? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, there's, there's a proper role for taxation. The primary role, not necessarily the only role, but the primary role of government and, and taxation is to provide for a, you know, ju a justice system. Mm -hmm. uh, police, uh, government, uh, court system, to make sure that people and their property are not harmed. And there are other expenses, of course, like keeping care of public ways, such as highways and etc. Nothing more than that? Not a lot more than that, no. I think most people would argue that the common good is greater now than it was, say, in 1870 when there was very little taxation and no welfare state. They would argue that uh, Bismarck, for example, who introduced a welfare state into Europe, the one we modeled our system on really, did that because the country was falling apart, because Prussia and Germany was falling apart, because there was, there was such a gap between rich and poor. Surely some form of distribution of wealth, redistribution of wealth, some form of welfare state, even if it's limited, is <coughs> worth having. Other than taking care of those who are obviously in have no income, have no way of sustaining themselves, perhaps the mentally ill and etc. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that a, a normally functioning adult has every responsibility to try to find work and, uh, and to carry out that work if they do find employment. Do you believe in equality of opportunity? Uh, no. I believe that it's impossible to make equal opportunities. I believe that uh, instead what you have is an equal um, application of the law. 
so that if, if there is, for example, uh, an opportunity that's open to one person uh, and to another, the law will not introduce some kind of distinction where one person gets a leg up as opposed to the other. In terms of opportunities, though, uh, an astronaut will have opportunities that I'll never have mm -hmm. because, his, because of his training. And, and no law is going, to be make, is going to give me that opportunity. Likewise, I'll never have the opportunity to give birth to a child because I just don't have the equipment. Yeah. So I, I really don't believe that you I can legislate. Yeah. I don't think you can legislate uh, equal opportunity. Let me rephrase the question then. Sure. Do you believe in creating a hereditary class system where the rich remain the rich and the poor remain the poor? I don't want the poor to remain the poor or else I'd remain poor. Uh, I, I think that uh, certainly people may dispose of their wealth as they wish. I don't think that the government should be taking it away at the time they die, if that's what you're asking. Well, I was asking this. If, for example, you're born into a family where, where dad is a millionaire, mm -hmm. now that's not being something, but where your father's a millionaire, and he may have worked very hard for that money, you're going to go to a school and to a university that's very good, and you're going to get a fine education, and you're going to be given the best, and you're mixed with the best, and the interest alone from, from your father's money will make you a very wealthy person. You've got to be pretty stupid to be poor at the end of that. If you're born um, into a, a family where there's very little money at all, the chances are you won't get out of that situation. The best you'll do is become maybe lower middle class. If you don't have a system of even gradual or slight redistribution of wealth, you will always have the rich being the rich, and there'll be a few poor people who get up the ladder and who say, oh, he was poor, but he's not so bad now, but generally nothing will change. We don't have equality. We never will have complete equality, but surely it's, it's in our nature, the best side of our nature, to try and achieve something approaching yeah. equality. I think, that, I think the exact opposite, using the exact same uh, elements you talked about. That redistribu redistribution of wealth is affecting the middle class, the lower middle class, the upper middle class, just as much as, it, you know, as it's helping the, those who are poorer. Mm -hmm. And if you want to have the person who has nothing have an opportunity or take advantage of his opportunities to become well-off, to become wealthy, then certainly you don't want to cut his legs off before he even gets there. I mean, I'm an employment lawyer by trade. Most of the people that come to see me aren't very wealthy. They mm -hmm. just lost their jobs. They're employed people. And their primary complaint whenever you talk about overtime is, why work overtime? If I work overtime, my tax rates will go up. I'll be working for peanuts. They understand that the current system of wealth redistribution through the tax system mm -hmm. is hurting them. Not, they can't get ahead. I certainly agree. It's deeply flawed. And welcome back to Just Right Media. Or just right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can join the conversation at 519-661-3600. Uh, and, um, Bob, your whole discussion in the first half hour of uh, eliminating irrelevancies dovetails well, I think, with this next half hour, where we'll talk about um, how do you fund a proper government? Mm -hmm. But before I attempt to answer that question, I'll have to define what I think a proper government is. And a proper government is one whose sole reason for existence is the protection of man's individual rights. That's it. Yep. The protection of man's Which rights. Which sounds is, simple, but it isn't. <laughs> uh, yes, it's actually quite complex, but it is, you know, you can yep. put it in a nutshell. Protection of your right to your life, your liberty, your property, your pursuit of happiness. A proper government is one whose goal is to eliminate the initiation of force in society. It's, it's able to do this if it acts as our agent for our own right to our self-defense. A proper government, therefore, would be the only institution that holds the exclusive power to use force, and that is as a consequence of our own individual right to self-defense. To quote Ayn Rand, a government is the means of placing the retaliatory force. I was going to say retaliatory force. 
placing the uh, retaliatory use of physical force under objective control, i.e. under objectively defined laws. So that's what a proper government should be. We're far from it. But what would a government like that look like today? To think about what it would look like, we might take a look at our own provincial government, for an example, and then start peeling away all of the non-essentials, all of the areas of our government that are not proper functions for the only institution permitted to use force in our society. The same exercise you could use for municipal government and for federal government, but I've taken the provincial government at, the, at this point. And here's a quick list of some of the items in Ontario's 2010 budget that would not appear if Ontario had a proper government whose only role was the protection of our rights. First of all, health care, biggest item on the budget, $44 billion. This isn't such a hard thing to do, removing it from a budget, considering that health care provision and administration is only a recent misuse of government power. State control of health care only came about in my lifetime. In Ontario, it was in 1967. Or was or it 68? I think we're somewhere in the, in the, the last 60s. three years of the 60s, somewhere in that Star Trek era when we were all flying to the stars. <laughs> the other one is education, another biggie. Education used to be, uh, oddly enough, for, for to most people, education used to be privately provided by employers and by churches, employers to their employees and to their families. But around the turn of the, the, turn of the 20th century, the government took it over because... Would you believe this? They saw too many American influences in the curriculum. I got that actually out of a book of yours, Bob, uh, Loyal She Remains. Yes, the book about the history of Ontario. Yeah. Uh, only later did they deem this service to be a role of government. A proper government would not provide money for the building of schools, the salaries of teachers, student loans, or the purchase of textbooks. Cost $20 billion this year. Government involvement in the economy. Right out. A proper government would be completely separate from the economy. No subsidies to individuals, no subsidies to corporations or business, no setting of interest rates via a central bank, no wealth redistribution of any kind. A proper government would be a referee in the economy, not a player. <clears throat> and to continue the list, just to run down them, Aboriginal affairs, gone. That's actually more federal than provincial anyway. Agriculture, food, and rural affairs. Why do we have such a ministry? <laughs> Community and social services, gone. Consumer services, economic development and trade, energy, environment. All of these have no purpose whatsoever in uh, government. Office of Francophone Affairs. Well, now, now, you know, some people might argue that some of them do. In, it depends on the context, like environment. Now, Actually, so it, in, a, in a smaller sense. Now, environment, when I say environment, we're thinking about that, um, what's that, that, that eco-fee thing? Well, eco-fee is green. That's, that's, the, that's the problem. All that stuff. So using even words like that, when I hear the environment, well, yeah, we should look after the environment. But in the hands of government, that's not what they're talking about. No, and a proper government, um, I and think they do maybe, have, under, maybe natural resources, something like that. That, yes. Yes. Looking but not, not under the moniker environment, right out. Um, Office of Francophone Affairs, health and long-term care, covered all that, and health promotion. Um, labor, housing, natural resources to, you know, to a much smaller extent. Northern development, mines and forestry, again, intrusion in the into the economy. Research and innovation, none of their business. 
Tourism and culture, leave it alone. Training, colleges and universities, again, not their... Not their this is the end of the world you're predicting here, Robert. <laughs> no, I think it's the beginning of a peaceful society. Transportation, the LCBO. My God, what's the government doing out there with a monopoly on liquor distribution? I'd the like Human to have Rights one. Commission. <laughs> Human Rights Commission, and a, a travesty of justice right there. Now, not wanting you to make me think that we have eliminated government in, in, in its entirety, here are some of the items that would remain in a proper government. Community safety and correctional services cost $2.3 billion. In today's budget. In today's budget, budget yeah. yeah. In today's world. Office of the Lieutenant Governor, Governor uh, $1.3 million. Ministry of the Attorney General, $1.5 billion. Uh, citizenship and Immigration, $112 million. Office of the Premier, $2.8 million. And, like, uh, and other like-minded uh, administrative government functions and correctional services, things that will protect your right to your life, liberty, and property. So there's a, just a, probably a few other items, um, a scale-back Ministry of Revenue, a smaller Ministry of Infrastructure, etc. Total cost of a proper Ontario government would probably not exceed $5 billion. 2000, 2010 operating expense of the Ontario government is over $105 billion, or 21 times the expense of a proper government. Now, that's the budget of spending, isn't it? <coughs> that's the uh, Ontario expenses, yeah. So that's the real tax rate, which we aren't seeing in our taxes because we're not paying not, for that. Yes, that's not your taxes. That's what they're spending, and they got to get the money somehow, either through borrowing, through the federal government transfer payments, through your taxes. Currently, the government gets its revenues in the following way. Um, personal income tax, $25.9 billion. Sales tax, $19.1 billion. Corporate tax, education property tax, Ontario health premium. A bunch of other taxes, government to Canada transfers, $23.7 billion. Income from government business enterprises, like the LCBO, I suppose, $4.2 billion. Other non-tax revenue, $7.4 billion. Total revenue, $106.9 billion. Now, when we come back from the break, I'm going to be talking about how do you fund that particular element of government that is proper. In other words, the protection of your rights. Because, as Paul McKeever said in the previous clip, there is a proper way to fund government. Yes, which was a very unlibertarian thing to say. Yeah, I think uh, he just dismissed himself as libertarian. Just he to, didn't want don't to even get into there. that debate. That's yeah. exactly, we, that was the strategy, by the way. <laughs> so, um, on the, coming out of the break, we'll talk about how do you fund a proper government. Perhaps we could discuss a date for our next meeting. Oh, yes, this Frank meeting. Uh, more than frank, Minister. Frank bordering on direct. It's all right. The cleaners will mop up the blood tomorrow morning. <laughs> but can you help me? How, Minister? All these undersecretaries, they're civil servants, aren't they? But they behave more like council, briefed by the transport interests to defeat the government. But that's right, Minister. No, Bernard, that's wrong. But that's how the civil service works in practice. Each department is controlled by the people who it's supposed to be controlling. How do you mean? <laughs> well, why, for instance, do we have comprehensive education? Who wanted it? The pupils? The parents? No, not particularly. The National Union of Teachers wanted it. They're the chief client of the Department of Education, so the DES went comprehensive. You see, every department acts for the powerful sectional interest with whom they have a permanent relationship. The Department of Employment lobbies for the TUC, whereas the Department of Industry lobbies for the employers. It's rather a nice balance. <laughs> Energy lobbies for the oil companies, defence lobbies for the armed forces, the Home Office lobbies for the police, and so on. But shouldn't the civil service be committed to helping the government carry out its wishes? Well, 
Well, so it is, as long as the government's wishes are practicable. Meaning? As long as the civil service agrees with them. <laughs> so, the whole system is designed to stop the cabinet from carrying out its policies? Well, somebody's got to. <laughs> Another call, Wally on line seven. Hi, Wally. Hi, Michael. Hi. Uh, I was just listening to the previous comment about uh, the 1917 legislation and the carrying on of the Income Tax Act. You know, it. What my studies started uh, some eight, ten months ago uh, on this particular issue. I, I am an accountant, and I've I've uh, audited with Revenue Canada, and I can assure you that the 1970 piece of legislation had absolutely nothing to do with the cost of the war. What it had to do with was the fact that we'd already, in 1913, changed from debt-free currency to debt currency. When the banks were given the power to start issuing money, and, and the national government had accumulated a $4 billion debt by the year ni 1917, and that was why we have an income tax act. And that's where our taxes are going, is to service that national debt. We don't All right. So it's nothing to do, nothing to do with the war. Tax, originally, was, income tax was brought in simply because the government couldn't manage things. True? Well, taxes are imposed to raise revenue. As to how the money uh, gets spent, who knows what the real motives were. Exactly. The point is, the money was uh, raised by, an indirect, or by a, a direct tax, that being the income tax. And there's some question in my mind, as to whether or not they're really supposed to be doing that. But it's, it's way too late in the game to be uh, still, reversing the trend. You still need a level of taxation to maintain a liberal de democratic society. I mean, there's nothing to even question in that argument. There may be some problem, there may be some little misgrievings with how it's worded and how it became, you know, how it's sort of changed over the last mm -hmm. few decades. But the fact is, you know, income tax is legal, income tax will always be paid, and we always will pay something of it. And welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can find all of our radio shows online at justrightmedia.org. That is all of 161 of our shows over the last three years. Four years, Robert. 2007, 8, 9, 10. Well, we're in the fourth year. Oh, okay, you're right. 2004. Okay, Hard to believe. Four years. You know, there was another one of those pointless arguments, you know, like... Uh, the caller there was correct about what he said about what they've done to the money supply, but it was irrelevant. Irrelevancy. You, see, it, it, you know, yeah. was it caused... No, we ha we had a debt, but was it caused by the war? Well, who cares what it was caused by? It's the debt you're addressing, and it's the spending that causes it eventually, you yeah, know? Exactly. So, back to the argument how to fund a proper government. Of all the forms of taxation, the only one with any legitimacy as a means to fund a proper government would be a sales tax. In a free society, there is only one thing that we owe each other, and that is justice. That being so, everyone must pay for the service they uniformly receive from the government, and in order to see that everyone benefits from a just government without discrimination or favoritism, a sales tax would fit that bill. A sales tax is also appropriate because it is directly tied to the social activity of trade, of entering into contracts with each other with the government acting, again, as a referee and not as a participant. The purpose of government is to ensure an environment where individuals can trade with each other with a degree of trust and with the knowledge that such trade is protected by law, where one party in a dispute can go to the government for redress because he has paid for that service via his sales tax during the transaction. Now, the provincial portion of the HST is 8%. 
It's estimated to take in $19.1 billion this year, four times what a proper government would require from this single tax alone. If we cut the provincial portion of the HST from 8% to 2%, we would fund all the needs of a proper government and would then have $100 billion to spend each year on many of those things the government provided at hyperinflated prices, much like our education and our health care. Except for direct fees for discretionary services or voluntary contributions to government, a sales tax would be the only moral way to fund it. Now, the most immoral way is income tax, which through its progressive nature, penalizes people for participating in society and being productive. This yeah. was mentioned before in your, your part of the show there, Bob. Well, it comes down to the old, um, you know, a tax is a fine for, for doing bad and a, a, a fine is... No, sorry. The a fine is a tax for doing bad and a tax is a, uh, is a fine, fine for, for doing, doing good. good. <laughs> exactly. An income tax is even more intrusive into our lives than the long-form census. If you think about it... Oh, it's a long-form census of its oh, own. All of the receipts for personal claimable expenses we submit, which the government records and then keeps on file. Don't forget to submit your birth control pill receipts under medical expenses and that anti-itch powder your doctor prescribed. <laughs> Does this long-form census get that detailed? No. How about the soccer fees for your kids, right? You're submitting those... Um, receipts to you to the government the list of personal activities the government is privy to yeah, they due don't need to a income tax is extremely invasive much more so than any long-form census uh, besides that the government knows where you work what you make what you spend your money on your personal medical history your education history what you spent to renovate your home last year all of this information is in the hands of the government None of this information should be in the hands of a proper government. I don't think people realize um, from our history how it used to be. Now, we've never really had a government that we could call proper in the sense that I've defined it. No, but we've, come, we've been much closer in the past. We in have terms been. of principles, yes. what often people do is mistake the harsher living conditions of the past with more primitive governments, which was not necessarily the case. That was just a fact of technology. Yes. We, we, you know, you have our technology today builds upon the technology of yesterday, and so does the debt and the spending of government, and that's something we have to remember. You know, when I was listening to Michael Korn in that earlier clip, I just couldn't believe his the assumptions in his arguments. He was really, he's really into the welfare state. You can, you can hear that. And it's odd because Michael Korn, I like because he's asking the right questions. Unfortunately, he comes yeah. up with the well, wrong answers. Well, certainly on, on those <laughs> ones, you know. And, and like, what does some people being rich have to do with other people being poor? He, he, he obviously thinks the two things are equated, and they're not. You know, yes, you, you know, should the rich me, remain rich and the poor remain poor? Well, yes, the rich should remain rich. I think we should need more rich people. Yeah, we need more rich people. We need some but super poverty rich people. is not caused by rich people. There's the that's, fallacy, that's, the fixed that's pie the, fallacy. That's the, that's the fallacy of his argument.
The fixed and pie, there's only so he, much money to go around. If he can illustrate that those rich people came up to those poor people and robbed them somehow, something like, uh, um, what is that thing called? Oh, government, like government <laughs> does, you know, then he'd have a case. But uh, that's not the case, and he just wants to see egalitarianism for its own sake. And to be sure, there is a danger in a society where you have that huge, huge class differential. But it's always the least in those societies that are most capitalist and, 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 and do the least about it yes. in terms of addressing addressing it directly in a linear fashion. Can't do it that way. Anything else, Robert, or are we done for today? I think we wrapped it up, Bob. Um, well, that's a start on our it. show on taxation and some of the weird arguments people use to basically defeat themselves. If you wonder why you're paying all those taxes, you've got to start thinking in terms of black and white, not all these grays that people are throwing at you. It doesn't matter whether they steal the money out of your left pocket or your right pocket. Stealing is wrong out of both pockets. And that's it for today. We're out of here. We hope that you'll join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. Be right, act right, stay right, and be right back here next week. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Here it is. What? Penalty for failing to report income. All persons are required under this title to pay an estimated tax or tax or are required by this title or by regulations made under authority thereof to make a return other than a return required under authority of section 6015 or section 6016 keep any records or supply any information and who willfully fails to pay such estimated tax or tax make such return keep such records or supply such information boy ralph it sounds like you are in trouble <laughs> trouble i don't even know what i'm talking about <laughs>